Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 7. The announcement that Tom didn't make, because I guess he thought it was awkward to say, hey, come to the reception and honor me and bring me gifts. You know, I guess, yeah, that might be a little whatever. Kids, yeah, you head to the kids' table, kids. Uh, so tonight at 5 o'clock, um, put Tom's face on the screen. Can you get to that one? Amy likes the face, so there it is. So that's tonight. That's as, that's as big as Tom is ever going to be, let me tell you. Uh, tonight, 5 o'clock, uh, in our activity center, we're going to have a reception in honor of Tom, bring gifts and cards to thank him for his near 21 years of ministry. It would have been 21 years, I think, in May is what he told me. So just a couple of months shy of 21 years of service to our church. Uh, come and thank him for that. Uh, as I told you last week, it, there will be cheesecake. There will be some for everybody, but there will be some you can't have. Uh, just, just know that. Don't get offended if Tom's got a stick and is beating people off of one particular pan of cheesecake. So come and be a part of that, and let's thank him for what he has done for us. At the end of the service this morning, I'll go ahead and warn you now, uh, Kirk Mellard will be closing us in prayer, but we're going to have Tom come up to the front, and we're going to gather around him as a church. We're going to commission him. We're going to send him out. Uh, that's what's happening. Y'all got to disciple him just as he discipled you for those near 21 years, and now we as a church get to send him out to the next ministry God has called him to. So we're going to do that this morning as a church family. Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> if you read it, there are some interesting things in Daniel chapter 7 and 8, and, and, and then, you know, you're, all these, we're going to talk about all that, but the title of the message is God in Charge. That is what we need to get from this passage. It's what I'm going to say a whole bunch of times, because that's what we need to understand. There's a lot in here to discuss, to study, to debate. Y'all, if you had all the books that discuss and debate what Daniel and Revelation mean and how they relate to each other and what all the symbols mean, you would have a full library. There are many, many different views. I'm not going to talk about a lot of the views this morning. I'm going to talk about a couple of things, but what we're going to talk about is that God is in charge. Now, these prophecies of Daniel uh, that we see in chapter 8, we need to understand some things about them. First of all, it says it scared Daniel. Well, that makes sense. You know, you, you see these creatures described, especially the fourth one that, that he didn't describe, so it was basically indescribable except for a few uh, characteristics. It scared him. He did not like what he saw. He also needed an interpreter. Now, that's interesting, considering Daniel was known for interpreting dreams. But, of course, we know that as he tells um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, hey, when I come and interpret this dream, you need to know it ain't about me, it's about the Lord who showed it to me. Well, that's the same thing that's happening here. He, he always needed an interpreter. Daniel didn't interpret dreams in and of himself. He interpreted, interpreted, him, interpreted them by the Lord. That's the same thing that happens here. He sees a dream. Uh, he has this dream. He looks around and says, okay, what's up? And there's somebody there to tell him. But it wasn't easy. So it's okay that we read chapter 7 and we go, what in the world? Because Daniel 
you know, saw chapter 7 and he went, what in the world? And he got help. It's this chapter, the, a few of the chapters, Revelation as well, if you want your, your, your genre word, it's apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse, a lot, if, a lot of your King James Bibles may still call Revelation the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's the word, the, the, the transliteration from Greek to English of apocalypse. If we translate it, we say revelation. But if we just go from Greek directly to English, letter for letter, it's apocalypse. This is apocalyptic literature, and it is full of symbolism. There are all, I mean, obviously, because very few of us, there may be somebody out there, but very few people think that an actual big lion with wings is going to crawl out of a sea at some point in the future. Most everybody agrees that that is symbolic of something. So it's full of symbolism, and we don't know how much is symbolic. Numbers can be literal, or they can be symbolic. The, the number four is used regularly, but if we go to Revelation chapter 7, which was a part of your reading this week, if you're keeping up with your, your D group readings, Revelation 7 talks about the four winds and the four corners of the earth. Now, are there only four winds? The answer is no. There are four major compass points, but we also know that there are a lot of directions in between those compass points. It talks about the four corners of the earth. Are, uh, are there corners on the earth, number one? The answer is no. And uh, would there be only four of them on the earth if it were? Well, I guess if the earth were flat, but I don't think anybody in here believes that either. So, so no, it, we, we live on a sphere. So there are no corners. So what does that mean? Well, four in that particular case just meant all of them. It's a symbolic number. Here, does this number mean exactly four or does it mean all of them? Well, that's what we discuss. That's what we uh, talk about as we read. Animals mean different things. The lion it, we've got uh, here, it's a lion. Babylon used a lion in their decorations. It was a symbol of Babylon. But uh, the Old Testament also tells us that, uh, let's see, I guess it's, uh, I'm not going to remember where it is. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So there's a lion that is both symbolic in this case of something bad, but earlier it's symbolic of Jesus himself, the Messiah coming. So animals can mean different things. The question we, come, uh, we have to ask as we read this passage is, which part is symbolic and which part isn't? Well, that's just something we have to keep in our heads as we go uh, through it. Well, the answer is, I don't know. We, 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 it is apocalyptic literature. It is intended to teach and to get our attention. What's it teaching and what's it doing when, I get, when it gets our attention? So who or what a symbol represents is always debatable. Uh, sometimes it's clear because sometimes Scripture interprets itself. And in those cases, we take what Scripture says, says elsewhere about a Scripture 
that we're talking about, and we go, okay, that's what it means. Well, if you read all of chapter 7 this week, you see that when Daniel's scared and confused and asked for interpretation, they interpret, it, interpret some of the symbols, but they also, the angel he's talking to also interprets them very vaguely. Okay, so know that uh, as we move through. So we'll talk about those possibilities. What we need to understand as we read this, though, is though the symbols and the re their representation are debatable, that God is in charge is not debatable. We come to the end of this chapter, we come to the end of this passage, verse 14, and we don't walk away wondering, well, is the lion this or that? Is the leopard this or that? And is God really in charge? No, no, no. We, we, we read the passage and we go, is the lion this or that? Is the leopard this or that? But God's in charge. Whatever these other things mean, we know the passage means that God is in control. And as we look at these symbols, as we seek to interpret them and understand them as best we can and compare them to Daniel chapter 2 and chapters in Revelation that talk about some similar but not exactly the same imagery, we're we have to remember that Jesus tells us before he ascends into heaven, while he's on earth teaching his disciples, nobody knows when he's coming back. As a matter of fact, at that moment, Jesus could honestly say, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, doesn't even know the day or the hour. Because as the human, in the human form where he had, and I've said this before, where he had temporarily, voluntarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes so that he would have to pray to the Lord so he could honestly ask who touched me when the woman grabbed the hem of his garment, he could say, in my human form, as I have voluntarily, temporarily set aside the free use of my divine attributes, though he never used that sentence, I can stand before my disciples and say, at this moment, I can't even tell you when I'm coming back. So, if he doesn't know, and we're told we'll never know, then your guess of when Jesus is coming back is wrong. What's, what's your guess? What year? You're wrong. What day? You're wrong. What hour? You're wrong. There. See, I solved it for you. Now it's easy. You, gotta, you, you can quit worrying about all that stuff. What the Bible does tell us is act like it's today. Because it can be at any moment. That's what Scripture tells us. So could it be before lunch this afternoon? Yep, some of y'all may not get Navroski's. Sorry. That's okay. It smells like cigarette smoke really bad in there. And I'm, we're not going to miss that. Maybe it's, maybe it's this afternoon. It's after lunch, but before the reception, and Tom doesn't get his cheesecake. And, you know, it, I'm sorry. It, it's just possible, okay? It's not, not guaranteed. We don't know. And that, we need to be okay with that. So we study it. We look at the symbolism, we compare things in history that happen that look like and sound like what prophecies and apocalyptic literature talk about, but we don't plant our flag there. We don't say, because this is what I read, and this guy says that, and this seems like it fits, that must be the way. Because if we do that... That's how we get people saying that vaccines are the mark of the beast. 
because they've planted a flag where a flag shouldn't be planted. They have seen things in a certain way that they should not have seen them or at least not been dogmatic about them. So we don't want to do that. So that's what we need to understand. That's some of the background as we move into this, uh, this apocalyptic literature, this specific dream of Daniel in chapter 7. Now he dreamed this, he says in verse 1, uh, uh, the year that... Uh, in, in Belshazzar's first year. So this would have been about around 550 B.C. It's obviously a few years before the vision of the handwriting on the wall where the, the Median Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire, depending on how you read it, conquered Babylon. And that, so he's, it's around 550 B.C. here. Uh, just to give you some uh, points that we're going to talk about. The, the Greek Empire comes along around 320 BC, so what's that, over 200 years later? And the Roman Empire begins as an empire, not as a republic, but as an empire in 27 BC, so another 300 years to that. So we're 500 years before some folks say some of these images apply, and that's okay. God can do that, no problem. No issues with God knowing what's coming. If you remember, if you've read it before, Isaiah told them a dude named Cyrus was going to rescue them from Babylonian um, exile. And that's what happened, but we're not talking about that today. God can be as, as specific as he wants to. Now, we read 1 through 14, and then we read uh, 15 through the end of the chapter, and we see God being as specific as he wants to. When Daniel asked the question, I don't get it. Can you tell me what, what all this is about? God answers through the angel just as much as God wanted to. And then Revelation doesn't really further the interpretation as much as it further solidifies that God is in charge. That's the message this morning, God in charge. So let's read verses 1 through 14, get a good idea of what we're looking at, get some of that imagery. Um, Amy, did you give them the coloring sheet of the, the yeah, y'all wish you had the coloring sheet of, of the fourth beast, okay? Because um, we don't know, we just know it's ugly and has horns. So whatever they decided on for that coloring sheet, whoever it was, you know, Maybe it's it. Give you nightmares. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Don't miss that. Here's the summary of his account. This ain't everything he saw. This is what the Lord told him to write down. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. There's that number four again, right? Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but he had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads, and it was given dominion. 
After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong, with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it, and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human, and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, and its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence, out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now we read through that, and it's very easy Well, it's easy for us to keep reading, get some of the interpretation. But it's also easy for us to stop and go, what in the world? And be like Daniel, I don't get it. Well, join the club. But let's look at it, let's just break it down into three big groups that that Daniel talks about here. Daniel sees, he sees kingdoms, he sees uh, kings, and he sees God. First, he sees four kingdoms. Four kingdoms in verses 2 through 7. Now we know those are four kingdoms because we read on. We saw in uh, chapters 15 and following that those four beasts were four kingdoms. And, And we could spend some time, but I'm not, talking about... The lion and the wings and the taken off and the and, uh, wings being taken off and being a, walking on hind legs and all that. And what does that mean? And I believe your uh, curriculum this morning, your connect group, compares that to Daniel 2 and says that's Babylon. And in particular, that is Nebuchadnezzar when he was sent out and ha- had a wild animal's brain and then, uh, or, or whatever. And then came back and he was restored. And, and I will give a big old maybe to that. It's possible. I mean, that's as good an interpretation as any other. And then each of the other beasts, you, can, you read enough and you read deeply enough and you'll find that they tell you what the wings mean and what the heads mean and the eyes mean and the, the ribs in the bear's mouth mean and, and each horn means this and the eleventh horn is this and, and all of these things. And, and they are good. They, they use scripture for the most part. Sometimes, though, we tend to use what's around us to interpret more than we use Scripture to interpret. And that's where we have to be careful. We use things that the Scripture at the time didn't envision, certainly. And maybe God had intended to apply, 
But we need to be humble enough and say, maybe not. And then look at Scripture and say, but what do we know? Well, we know. Well, I, I won't surprise you. I mean, I will surprise you. I don't want to give it away. God in charge. So what are these kingdoms then? What are these beasts? Well, a lot of scholars will tell you that these are Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, that's the, le- uh, the bear, the Greek Empire, that's the leopard, and the Roman Empire, that's the, the fourth beast. And, and that could be the case, but already we have a little bit of a difficulty in, in making those four beasts be those four kingdoms, because if you notice up there, I've got Medo-Persian Empire. Well, you've got Darius the Mede, who, uh, verse, uh, was it the end of chapter 5, I think? No, it's the end of chapter, yeah, the end of chapter 6. The last verse of chapter 6, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, and we talked about uh, a little bit, even the, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Does that mean that Darius was a leader and later on Cyrus became a leader? Well, a lot of scholars will say that word isn't and, it means even. It's who is known as would be another way to interpret it, if not translate it. Darius, who was also known as Cyrus. The point is, the Median Empire was small-ish, Pretty powerful, never as powerful as Rome or the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, and it was the forerunner of the Persian Empire. As a matter of fact, Cyrus was a Mede. That's why he was Darius the Mede, Cyrus uh, the Persian. Same guy. He was from the Median Empire, he grew up in the Median Empire, but then when he took over, he brought in the Persian Empire, or brought about the Persian Empire. So already, we've got four beasts, but depending on how you count, is it five kingdoms? Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome? Or do we massage it a little bit so we can say Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Rome? See, four kingdoms, four beasts. So you see how... It's, it's rarely a one-to-one thing. That's where we have to be careful. It's where we have to be careful to say, this is absolutely the way it is, and it must be that, and you don't believe that. There are churches that will kick you out if you don't believe the end times are going to happen the way they tell you it's going to happen. I'm, I'm just, that's the way it is. I'm not one of those folks. So we already have this difficulty. But if we read on in chapter 7... The rest of chapter 7 doesn't say who the beasts are, does it? Now, if you read on to chapter 8, was that part of our reading this week too? Uh, I can't remember now. It's been too long. No, that's next week. So you're going to read in chapter 8, one of his visions, it is going to say, and this one is Greece. And it's even going to talk about a a, a Greek man, a, a leader, a king rising up. And a lot of folks believe that's Alexander the Great. Now... It doesn't say Alexander the Great. It doesn't give his name. But, but when it says this one is Greece, we go, okay, Bible says it's Greece, it's Greece. I ain't going to argue with that. But in chapter 7, there's no name given to those beasts. What we do know, though, about these beasts, about these kingdoms, is that they are powerful and deadly. And it also, there's a, uh, if you read the passage kind of the way Daniel wrote it, There's this rapid-fire 
overlapping uh, feel to it. We kind of want to read it as if one beast came up and then there was whatever, and then another beast came up and then some whatever. And then, but, but the way he says it uh, uses, the first was like suddenly in verse 5, 6, after this, uh, verse 7, after this, there's this rapid fire where as one's coming out, it's just like another one's coming in. It's an assembly line of death and destruction coming out of the sea. So don't miss that as, as if there's this huge gap of time. Now, I just told you there were hundreds of years. It may be longer than hundreds of years if it doesn't apply to those kings. But the point is not the amount of time. The point is how those kingdoms function, how they keep a constant, what appears to be, death-like grip on the world. They appear to be in charge. These kingdoms, these, these beasts, these things that, that Daniel has never seen before and struggles to describe, wouldn't you think, if you're looking at them going, man, they, this is impressive. There is no, there's, there's nothing we can do about these. They come out of the sea, they just, they just appear, they're, they're eating things, they're being told to gorge on things. N- notice they're being told to gorge on things. Verse 4, his wings were torn off, it was lifted up, it was set on its feet. Verse 5, it was raised up on one side, it was told, get up, gorge yourself. Don't miss that these kingdoms are not in control. They are powerful and deadly, but they are ultimately under control. The control of God. All of them. No matter how ugly, no matter how powerful they look, no matter how deadly, no matter how much they terrorize, ultimately they all fall under God's control. That's the four kingdoms. Then on this fourth beast that's not described very much, other than to tell us it has ten horns then an eleventh horn, we find eleven kings in verse 8. Again, we know those horns represent kings because that's what the passage tells us if we keep, keep reading. We don't have any clue who the first ten are. You can, there, there are scholars that will try to tell you that each horn represents a particular king, or they will tell you that uh, uh, the, uh, 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 they are subsets, offshoots of the Roman Empire somehow. There are those that will tell you that the three bones in the bear's mouth in in verse 5 are particular kingdoms that are conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. The thing is, they conquered more kingdoms than just three, so who gets to decide that they were, which three were the most important that they conquered. Who gets to decide what these ten kings are, since there have been a lot more than ten kings since the Roman Empire, and no ten kings in the Roman Empire. There were more Caesars than that. There, there, it, see, don't plant your flag there. Don't hang your hat there. Maybe there were more than ten kings. Maybe that number 10 is symbolic for a bunch. 
Matthew does this in his lineage of Jesus when he says 14 generations separated uh, Abraham and David and 14 generations separated David and Jesus. The thing is, we know that there were many more than 14 generations. He's making a theological point, not a genealogical point. There are other people, because Luke talks about them, there are more generations than that. The math just doesn't work. So what's Matthew doing? He's making a point about how everything is under God's control. How it is set out in periods of time, no matter how random it looks to us. No matter how we look at it and go, this is, how is this working out, God? How It's been too long, it's been too short of a time, whatever. God says, no, no, no. This period of time and this period of time is exactly what I wanted. So these first ten horns could have been ten kings, they could have been a hundred kings, they could have been seventeen kings. It just probably, because we don't know, means they're a bunch of kings. But then, this other one comes along. But let's stop at the ten for just a second. These kings come, they are from this beast, they're part of this beast that he can't describe, and this beast devours and crushed and trampled with its feet, whatever was left, it was different from all the beasts, and it had ten horns. And then as we read in verses uh, 23 or so, we see the ten, king, they, the ten horns, the ten kings rise from the kingdom, they do all sorts of things. There will not be, and there never has been, a king or a kingdom, a country or a leader who is for God. I think that's the message here from the ten horns. Doesn't matter how many it is. Doesn't matter how many kingdoms. Doesn't matter how many kings. Doesn't matter what you call your kingdom or what you call your king. The point is, from the time of whenever that last beast comes out, whether that's the Roman Empire or something else, from the time of that to when the Son of Man takes the throne, there's not going to be a king, kingdom, country, or leader that follows God. Oh, there will be some that are closer. There will be some that, that, that lead in certain ways. There may be even leaders who are followers of Jesus. But we are not to look to any of the ten horns, any of the ten kings, any of the any number of kings that come along and say, there is our salvation. Because you're not going to find it on earth. None of them. It doesn't matter the kingdom. It doesn't matter the king. So Daniel is telling us this, this one kingdom comes up and then everything that follows after it is against God. No matter how good you are, no matter how perfect you try to be, you're against God. Now, praise God, we have the blood of Jesus that removes the stain of sin, that takes away the enmity between us and God. We are no longer God's enemies, but even in our saved state... We as believers fight, wrestle, deny, disregard, disobey God. None of us are perfect. 
No king, no kingdom. And we are never going to be what we should be. So we should never look to any human or any human organization to be what only God is supposed to be. And then this 11th horn pops up. Possibly this is the Antichrist of Revelation. This is the last powerful king, the first one, uh, the last powerful leader, uh, the, uh, the one right before Jesus comes back. Now, in order for that to be the case, a few other things in your interpretation of Scripture have to also be the case. You have to also believe in a literal, single, capital letter Antichrist. And it's okay if you do, but that's a debate. Not every biblical scholar, not every conservative biblical scholar does. But Revelation uses different symbols for the Antichrist than a horn. In Revelation, the Antichrist is actually a beast. And then there's another beast that is uh, equated with the false prophet of Revelation. So you have to be careful because it doesn't use the same symbols. So is this the Antichrist? I'll give you another big old maybe. But we have to be careful. What we do see is that there will be a never-ending chain of kings and kingdoms, countries and leaders that don't follow God until God steps in and Jesus comes back. Because no matter what we believe about the symbols, no matter what we believe about the timing, and if you've really studied it and you're really into it, then you've, you will talk about seven years of tribulation or three and a half years of tribulation. You'll talk about a millennium, and, or maybe you'll talk about not a millennium, and then you're millennial. You'll talk about a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, or you will talk about uh, none of that happening. Except, as believers, Orthodox Christianity says Jesus is coming back for his church. We don't know the hows and the whys and the whens. Well, I guess we know the why. We don't know the hows or the whens. And maybe there is seven years or three and a half years. And maybe there is a, a rapture before or after. We will be taken up somehow. Maybe there is. But all I do know is that no matter what kings come along, no matter the power and the control that they appear to have, no matter what they do to us, the church, me as a believer, or how they ravage the rest of the earth, or space if we get out that far, no matter what happens to all of that, in the end, Jesus comes back and God takes the throne. That's what we know. And that's all the comfort I need. I don't need, and I'm telling you, believer, you do not need the comfort of knowing exactly what the leopard with four wings and four heads and all the eyes means. Is it a great conversation? Sure. Is it a fun debate? Absolutely. Read all the books. But no. That Jesus is coming back. That God is in charge. And that's where Daniel takes us in verses 9 through 14. He says, as I kept watching, 
I'm, I'm, I'm watching this play out on his uh, big screen TV or whatever it is. He's, he's seeing the monsters come up, and, 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 and he's going to find out that they're kingdoms right at first. He doesn't know, but let's put ourselves in his place for the moment. He's scared by what he's seeing. He has no idea what he, it means, but as he continued watching, thrones are brought in, and he sees one God. He's seen four beasts, he's seen ten horns, he's seen an eleventh horn, he's seen all these things going on, but in verse 9, he sees one God. Well, there's a sermon right there. In all of that, God stands tall. God stands supreme. What does this throne room scene look like? Well, that's this next section, what God looks like. And he never sees a face. He never sees, let's see, we know he has hair. And he sits down. That's as human as God gets in this description. He has hair and he sits down. Well, my dog Cotton has hair and sits down. I'm not saying God's a dog. I'm saying this tells us nothing about the way God looks as far as actual, physical, human attributes. What does it say? Well, Daniel says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place. Are these thrones symbolic? Maybe. But what do we see? As we read this, as 2022 believers... What do we see? Well, we see multiple thrones, one sitting down. Why multiple thrones? That's a question I had. Why, why are you going to bring in a whole bunch of chairs and only one person or deity sits in those chairs? Well, it doesn't say a whole bunch. Could have just been two. Or it could have been a whole bunch. I think what we do see, though, is we have this idea. We, we, we see these thrones set up, and we see the Ancient of Days take one seat, and the rest of them are empty. In my mind, I just see infinite power. I see emphatic sovereignty. I see God saying, you see all these thrones? If I wanted to, I could sit, them, sit in them all at the same time. But what you do need to know is ain't nobody else sitting in them. You've seen beasts. You've seen horns. You've seen what you're going to find out is kingdoms and kings. And look, every seat up here is empty except the one I sit in. Infinite power and emphatic sovereignty. It says he's glowing bright white. His clothing was white like snow. The hair of his head like whitest wool. Again, no description of his face. So currently we have clothes and hair sitting in a throne, surrounded by other thrones. Can't imagine why Daniel was scared. I mean, that makes perfect sense. A floating wig over a robe. What does this bright white mean? Glory? Purity? Yes. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. But what we see with no face, we, we see that we can't describe God. 
Daniel's struggling. This is a summary. Did he have more details to give? Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to use that word a lot this morning. That should have been one of their eight words. Maybe like, <laughs> maybe. But I think if he, even if he had more descriptors, I could envision him sitting writing this down, one of two things. One going, well, that doesn't make sense. Oh, they're not going to believe that. No, I can't use that word. That's weird. Um, or he's going, you know, it doesn't matter. Let me just tell you how indescribable the Ancient of Days is. He's like bright white. Just poosh. And probably he couldn't spell that, so that's why it's not in the scripture. He was like poosh. Just too hard to, in Hebrew especially. Flames of fire. He's on fire. His throne's on, I mean, not he's on fire. His throne's on fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. It has wheels. It's a hot rod throne. And they're flaming. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. Are you getting this? A wig, a robe, bright white. Sitting in a whole lot of fire. The fire is apparently shaped like a throne. He can make out the throne. It's a throne that's on fire with wheels that are on fire. That's a lot of symbols. Is God unapproachable? Oh, you better believe it. Abraham says, or Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you don't. I tell you what, you can see my, the, the tail end of my robe as I walk by. And that's all you can handle. And, and Moses was glowing so much from being in his presence. And his hair was turned white because he saw God. And all he saw was the hem of his robe as he passed by. He didn't get to see all of him. Unapproachable? Yeah. Dangerous? All that fire? Yeah. I've used this quote before. And it's just a wonderful quote. But of course it is because C.S. Lewis wrote it. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the, the kids were talking to, to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. They're learning about Aslan, the lion. And they find out he's a lion, and they say, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver scoffs, safe? Heavens no. But he's good, I tell you. Why, he's the king. Yeah. No, he's not safe. Not a bit. Does that sound safe? But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. All those thrones are his. And then we read that countless members of his court are serving and worshiping. Thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. What does that mean? Does that mean a hundred thousand million? No, it means a, a bunch. Again, a bunch. That's not an exact number. That's, they can't count them. I looked and I saw a multitude, is what John's going to say. Well, there's your multitude. Daniel just used some numbers. What does that tell us? That right there in that courtroom, God is the one in charge. Everybody there knows it. The beasts know it because they were built up or lifted up or ripped off or, or thrown, gotten rid of, and we're going to see it some more. 
And what does God do? What do we see in this throne room? We see him make some decisions. Verse 11 tells us that he destroys kingdoms. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed. Who killed it? God, the Ancient of Days. That's the focus here. The whole time, that's the focus. Kingdoms are destroyed because of God. Verse 12 says that as far as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted. So in some way, they're no longer in power, but they still exist. Yeah, we can see that. We can, we, there's a, still a Greece. If, if one of these was Greece, Greece still exists as a country, but it's not a world power. Rome, Italy, they exist. They're not a world power. We see that he sets the time frames. God is the one that says, and a kingdom starts and a kingdom ends. And it's up to him. Y'all, the U.S. is going to end. U.S. ain't heaven. There will be a time that it began. There was. We're familiar with it. And it will end. God sets the time frames. We see that he is raising up. He raises up in verses 13 and 14 his co-regent. I continued watching verse 13 in the night vision, and suddenly one like a son of man. And we know this is Jesus because Jesus refers to himself a whole bunch of times as the son of man. This is Jesus Christ right here. Before he comes to earth, before he has voluntarily, temporarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes. He raises up his co-regent. The, the, the Messiah comes in. Daniel sees that there will be a day when Jesus, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, will usher in the kingdom of God. He will show up. Will that be uh, in Bethlehem? The, the, the evening when the angels showed up? Well, Jesus tells them throughout the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom started when Jesus came. Will that be when Jesus comes back the second time? Well, yeah, the kingdom will be fulfilled and, and uh, fully implemented at a time, but the kingdom is already here, and it's not here yet. But he has raised up his co-regent. God has lifted up the Son, the Messiah, and told Daniel, this is what's going to happen. And then in verse 14, he institutes the eternal kingdom of the Messiah. He was given, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language. You mean all the ones of the beast's kingdoms? Uh-huh. Well, some of them, not all of them. Every language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. God sets his son, sets the Messiah up as the king who is coming and will come again. Because God is in charge. And what we see in this vision of this throne room is we see one who is more awe-inspiring than the beasts but without the wildness. Oh, it's weird looking. Wig and a robe that's white on the inside. All the flames and everything. Awe-inspiring. Certainly dangerous. Unapproachable, except by the blood. 
but you don't get the same sense of terror from Daniel when he describes the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Oh, you get terror from the four beasts. But then, but then, he says, thrones were set in place. So this morning, as we think about Daniel 7, as we read Daniel 8 next week, symbols aren't the point. They make the point. Discuss them again, study them, read what, but they are not the point. The point we need to absolutely walk out of here with, or the points, earthly kingdoms will come and go. They have and they will, and they always will. A heavenly kingdom won't. God is in charge, number two. Those kingdoms come and go, but God doesn't because he is in charge. He is on that throne in the midst of the thrones. They are, the kingdoms are controlled by him. And number three, Jesus is the focus. As we get to the end of the passage, it narrows. We've got the sea and the earth and kingdoms and crunch, crunch, crunch. And then as all that happens and it narrows and he sees now a vision of a, a throne room and thrones. We see multiple. Then the ancient of days are sitting the one and the thousands upon ten thousands. And then we focus a little bit more and we see the son of man. And we see his kingdom. Church, that's all we need to see is the Son of Man, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus, and His kingdom. Because our kingdoms will come and go. Whether it's our little, little kingdoms we set up at home, our little kingdoms at work, our little kingdoms at church, our little kingdoms in countries, they don't matter. They are not the focus. They are not the point. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the point. So we can rest comfortably knowing that it does not matter the beast, does not matter the terror, does not matter the power, the destruction. The only thing that matters is Jesus. And this morning, you may have your own kingdom. And your kingdom's probably falling apart because that's what kingdoms do. But that's because you think you're king. You think you're king of your life. You think you are the ruler of all things in your world, and you're not. God is in charge. And what you're experiencing is the natural result of God not being in charge. This morning, you can make God in charge of your life again. But you can't just, oh, okay, I'll let God do it. No, there's, there's a relationship. You can't come to the throne. He's unapproachable and dangerous. Fire and flames and all. You can't just walk up to God and say, all right, fix it, man. Let's go. Do this. Get my kingdom right. No, no. You go through the blood. You go through the Son. The Son provides the access God says, you as a sinner cannot approach me. But through Jesus Christ, you can. Romans 6.23 tells us how that works. The reason you can't approach him is because of your sin. 
The wages of sin is death. Separation from God. Not only can you not approach him, you ain't never going to get close to him because of your sinfulness, because of your sin. But God didn't want it to be that way, so he made a path, and he provided a gift. The gift of God, his gift, is eternal life. He said, I want you to be with me. I don't want death to be the end for you. I want eternal life and an eternal relationship with me to be the end. But I can't just give it to you. Not going to just give it to you. We can't ignore everything you've done. We can't ignore the wages you've earned by your sin. So he provides Jesus. Dying on the cross for our sins. Rising from the grave on the third day to prove that he had victory over the sins because he had victory over death. And then you have a relationship and the, 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 the flaming throne and the, the unseeable face Maybe that's still there, but the Son of Man who took his place beside the King, beside the Ancient of Days, draws us in and says, let me introduce you to my Father. Because with me, you can approach him. With me, whatever seeing him is going to mean, we will see him. And we get to experience a relationship with the Lord we can't just do on our own because this is the way God set it up and God is in charge let's pray father thank you that that really thank you that our kingdoms will fail because I'm not the best at it I'm not great at kingdom building uh, kingdom sustaining and and the decisions for my kingdom mm, don't always work well, but Lord, you, <laughs> you are perfect at it. And if we will allow you to be the king of our lives, then all the other kingdoms don't matter. God, if we will trust Jesus as our Savior, we get to rest comfortably in the presence of a flaming throne and a white hot God knowing that all the other stuff is taken care of. We, we get to kind of live out Mary and Martha. God, we get to be Mary. We don't have to be Martha. We get to sit at your feet. We don't have to worry about so many things. Lord, may we see in our lives that you are in charge. This morning, may someone who has never trusted Jesus as their Savior see that no matter how hard they try to be in charge, they can't. You have set the parameters. And you have said if we try to do it on our own, we will fail and we will spend an eternity, an, an eternity separate from you. But if we will confess our sins, admit that we're a sinner, and believe in Jesus Christ, confess him as Lord, we will be saved and then we get to see you as king. Safe? No. But good. Our king, I tell you. God, thank you that you provided a way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, you might have the wrong king of your kingdom. Maybe you're a believer, but you still think you're in charge. 
Today's the day to give that up. Maybe you're an unbeliever and you said, I am king of my kingdom. I'm going to... No, you're not. You're going to struggle for the rest of your life and spend an eternity in hell. Maybe today is your time. No, not even maybe. I'm going to throw out the maybes now. Today is your time of decision. What decision will you make? Tom will be down here on the front... Uh, in the front corner, if you'd like to pray with him and uh, help, uh, ask him to help you move through whatever it is you need to give up, we'll have a couple of men, a couple of our deacons in the back. Uh, if you would feel more comfortable with a lady, uh, Amy's down here. She would love to pray with you. Uh, you can grab her. What's your decision today? Will you continue to try to be the king of your life? You will fail. We have one king. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's worship that king. And let him tell us what we need to do in our lives.